Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline won't be able to join us today. But we have a, a book that I loved reading. But, you know, I do love this type of book, which is a crime thriller, suspense. There's a lot of, a lot of names for this genre. Our guest yeah. today is Jonathan Santlofer. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Jonathan Santlofer is a writer and artist. He is the author of The Last Mona Lisa, The Death Artist, The Widower's Notebook, and more. He's the recipient of two National Endowment for the Arts grants, has been a visiting artist at the American Academy in Rome, which sounds amazing, and was the creator and director for the Yados or for the Center for Fiction's Crime Fiction Academy, the only program devoted exclusively to crime writing. He's taught crime writing fiction, the graphic novel, and drawing in many places, and his artwork has been exhibited in more than 200 exhibitions worldwide and is included in numerous private, corporate, and public collections, among them the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Art Institute of Chicago, two of my favorite art museums, and many more. And the book that we're talking about today is, well, most of you would say The Lost Van Gogh, but having been to Holland, it's really The Lost Van Gogh. Right. <laughs> yes. You know, it's so funny because people here, uh, of course, we say Van Gogh, but people think it's uh, Van Gogh. But you're right. In Holland, my Dutch friend said, no, 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 no. Van Gogh. Yes. But I'm sticking for now. We can stick to Van Gogh so people know who we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that um, that I loved about this book is it's partially set in Amsterdam. Not not yeah. completely, but and I did have one opportunity to visit Amsterdam. I think it was in 2008, and I mm. did go to some of the places that you write about, including the Van Gogh Museum and uh, the Anne Frank House. So it was fun to revisit those places through your character's eyes. Nice. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. It's yeah. the best, you know, it's the best part of writing a book is travel research. Ah, well, especially yeah. if you actually go. You know, nowadays, yeah. some some writers don't. They can use the Internet and they can get a pretty good feel for things. Use Google Earth. You know, and... can, I just, can I just interrupt you to say you can't? You know, <laughs> uh, I, in early books, so there are a few examples, places I didn't go. And then later I went. I had it wrong because oh. you don't know what it smells like. You don't know what it feels like. You don't get the, the scale of things, you know? So I think it's essential. I always do it. Plus, as I said before, it's the best part of my research is travel and going places and, and living somewhere, staying somewhere, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And tax deductible. True. That <laughs> True. Yes, it is. It is tax deductible. Right. Yeah. Right. For um, for a working writer who's actually going to. Yeah. Who's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a little as a, I actually have a background as a, a tax professional. So. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, so, I'm going to call you. <laughs> so if you're if you're you know just starting out as a writer and you're taking exotic trips and writing them off and you don't have any income coming in. 
as a result of that, you're probably going to get slapped down on that. Right. You might get away with it. One of the things, one of the problems is that unless you get audited, um, you can you can deduct anything as long as you don't get audited. And people mm. get the idea that if they deduct something and it doesn't get caught, then it must have been okay. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, so, well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I have experience in that from my years also as a visual artist because, you know, materials and all of those kind of things. But you do have, have had, you know, a great um, entertainment and art accountant who says no 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 no. if you don't make a profit you're a hobbyist right you can get you know they won't allow it right so you know i'm very i'm very aware of it yeah yeah and you can you can have losses sometimes but not year after year after year right so yeah Yeah. so so you um do you do still both the visual art and the writing or have you kind of switched over well you know, I do. I do both, but it's different. There was a time uh, when I would have said I was an artist who also wrote. And now I would say I'm a writer who also paints. Um, <laughs> just, you know, you, it's very difficult to do two careers, real careers, very well. And I was part of the very serious art world and I exhibited and did all of this. And, you know, I. It, it's really hard. Um, so I do an odd thing now, though, which is about twice a year I take on a commission painting and the commissions are legal forgeries. You know, I will make <laughs> I will make paintings for people that they desire. Sometimes it's someone who's donating a well-known painting to a museum and they want a copy to keep. So I'll make that for them. And it's come in remarkably handy monica because i've written about art forgers and i know what it's like to be inside their head what it's like to make a painting like that you know well you know that kind of begs the question if a painting can be copied in a way that even most experts can't tell the difference Mm -hmm. what makes Mm. what is the difference what makes one thing worth millions and the other one essentially worthless (laughs) it's a great question it's a great question and it's a really important question because it's a fact you know in fact let's say you know christie's and sotheby's they've auctioned off fakes not knowing it but okay so why you know i had the question many times with my my last book the last mona lisa people would say to me tell me why the mona lisa is so important you know and i'd say okay It's by Leonardo da Vinci, who was one of the five of the high renaissance in Italy, Michelangelo, Titian, Raphael, you know, and Leonardo. Leonardo, who we know incredibly well from his notebooks, The Last Supper. But in fact, when it came to oil painting, he was kind of a slacker. He made 15 or 16 oil paintings in his whole life. That was it. So the Mona Lisa is this rare object, you know, from the high Renaissance, um, which gives it its value. It's also was a painting, you know, it was a commission to paint this man's wife and Leonardo never finished it. He took it with him. He always painted on it. <laughs> it and when he died in France, it ended up in the French courts. Napoleon stole it and put it on his bedroom wall, finally ended up in the Louvre. So, you know, it's 
history that's attached to an object for, you know, it's funny, like it doesn't have to be a painting. It's just something that's connected to culture, you know, like wanting auctioning JFK's golf clubs or Marilyn Monroe's pottery. You know, we people want a piece of history, right? That's connected. So Van Gogh, you know, made many paintings, but he had a very short life. He died at 37. And so his work not only is a wonderful, amazing artist, but his work is limited. It's limited into what we can get, you know. So um, I don't think I've, I've not faked a Van Gogh painting. I have faked Van Gogh drawings, but I didn't fake them. I copied them so I could understand what Van Gogh was trying to do with his line, his mark. You know, really, I do that a lot. Uh, I draw when I travel places to, to understand a place better. You know? and, and in the back of the book, The Lost Van Gogh, you have a number of your sketches of um, yeah, different yeah. places and about Van Gogh and, and uh, the Anne Frank family, Amsterdam. So it was enjoyable to see those. And Thank you. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, there's many, many more of them, and my editor selected some that she thought had relevance, particularly to the book. Um, and I was happy they did that. You know, it's unusual. I mean, the drawing, for example, from the Anne Frank house, um, there's a scene in the book that takes place there. And I got to go through it with the crowd, but I also had permission to be there by myself with one person. And it was quite extraordinary. And I did a drawing that that's in a light box in the Anne Frank house of the, people who were in hiding and just doing that drawing brought me so close somehow to Mm. those people, you know? So um, I think it's because I was trained and went to art school. So I I see things very visually, you know, so it's, um, and I like it in my writing. It's, I try and always see a scene in my head as I'm writing it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, and then you're painting with words. Absolutely. That's a great way to say it. It's really true. It is, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. One I recently in the last year or two, one of my covid. Um, yeah. uh, what would you say? Pastimes. Um, mm-hmm. I took some online painting courses and um, from a local teacher who's very good. And, and the way that, you know, he teaches is we do copies of famous works and um he he sends he sketches it out on the canvas just a very light sketch and he sends you all the right colors and stuff so it makes it very easy to do but um and it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun to do these paintings and they turned out really pretty good if i do say so myself we did i did a george o'keefe and i i can't remember Uh, you know kind of mostly impressionistic type of things not can i ask you a question about that yeah so if if he sends you all of this and the colors does how does everyone's painting really look alike like or do their personalities and and you know, create their paintings the, differently. The personalities definitely create. In fact, I did one with my granddaughter, who I think was nine at the time. And our uh-huh. paintings, she she completely did it different. She didn't want to stick to the original material at all. And she, so you can use your own creativity. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, and it so it was a lot of fun. But the thing I realized is that to be an artist, the mm-hmm. half of the, 
job, in a sense, is figuring out what to paint. What is the scene that you're actually painting? What are you capturing? So when you're copying someone who's already done that work, it's a whole lot easier than to sit down with a blank canvas. Sure. Even if, you know, you yeah. might be in front of something saying, I'm going to paint this, but which aspects are you putting in? How do you want the light? You know, all right. of those things. That's what makes an artist, I think. Yeah, I think when you copy, what you learn is you, you're looking, you're learning what that artist was seeing. So you get into their mindset, right? right, right. Um, when you're making your own paintings, you are making all the decisions, you know, how you're going to lay this out on a canvas, how the color is going to work against each other, you know, all the compositional ideas. I mean, I went to a very, very old fashioned strict art school and Boston University School of Fine Arts, nobody realizes what an old fashioned academy that is. But, you know, we had drawing three hour workshops every single day. We drew an egg with a pencil every day. We learned, <laughs> we learned to mix our colors from raw pigments. So I still to this day can paint. I can duplicate any color in a second with my paints, you know, because we were taught that. And I will say that that training was so great for writing, you know, because it's very disciplined. Um, you know, you, nobody forces you to do it. You have to sit down every day. You have to face it like a job. And it just for me, I don't know. I think the discipline of being an artist and the vision, visual acuity of being an artist was incredibly helpful to me as a writer. What made you decide to change from being primarily an artist to primarily a writer? You know, it wasn't, I think it was forced upon me. The universe forced it upon me, and I'll tell you why. That sounds very woo-woo, but it's, <laughs> it's not. I had a, a pretty good career, and about 25, maybe more, years ago, I was having a retrospective exhibition. It was 10 years of my artwork. I was going to say, were you kind of young to be having a retrospective? Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, and in fact, thank you, Monica. I love you. That's really sweet. Um, I, I was against the idea. I told my New York dealer, I'm too young for this. It's not a good idea, blah, blah, blah. And I postponed the show twice. It was in Chicago. They gathered back 10 years of my work from collectors and from museums. And the show opened on a Friday and the place burned down to the ground the next day. What? Burned. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I lost 10 years of work, much of which was no longer mine. But in like five minutes, it was gone. And um, it changed my life. You know, I had trouble painting. I was invited to the American Academy where I went a few months later with my wife and my eight-year-old daughter. And I had such a hard time painting. I was staggering and, you know, making a mess of paintings. But I, I just my head was I was trying to refigure out why I was even a painter. But at the same time, I started a novel. And that's what happened. You know, I I started this novel. It was about a uh, an artist who has a 10 year retrospective show too early. <laughs> that burns down. Does this sound familiar? And uh, I had about 200 pages. We lived in Rome for almost a year. And when I came home, I read what I had written. And I'll admit this now. I just I hated the character. I just thought he was like whiny and privileged and 
for so I killed him on the page. I literally murdered him. And it made it was kind of a good exercise. You could kill yourself and still wake up in the morning, you know, <laughs> um, but it made me realize what I wanted to do with that book, which was to write a thriller. And that became my first novel, The Death Artist. And I was incredibly lucky. I that a friend of mine sent my manuscript to a couple of agents and one of them a very kind of big deal agent flipped over it and sold it and it did incredibly well. Um, and that started me, you know, then they gave me a two book contract and I was like, what? what? <laughs> and I wrote two more books, um, neither of which was nearly as successful as the first, but, but you know, that's how life is. And I, but I kept going and I just, and I discovered that I loved, and you said it so well before, I loved painting pictures in my mind. I really loved it. I loved writing on the page and seeing it create itself and watching the characters do things I hadn't imagined. And without being too descriptive, because I don't like over description, but finding ways to make visual equivalents so that people could see things in their minds. You know, I know that uh, during the pandemic, when I wrote The Last Mona Lisa was out, I got lots of emails from people thanking me for taking them to Florence, to Italy and Paris. <laughs> and that, that was nice. I had done that travel research just before the pandemic, you know. Oh, yeah, that's a great way to travel when you can't travel is through books. Yeah, and we know so, <laughs> yeah, but um, your original question, so it changed my my art life a lot. And and then I slowly or quickly, rather suddenly moved into writing and I continued and I was trying to balance the two careers. And I ended up, I don't know, you know, I became more obsessed with my writing and um, I draw every day and I do these commissions. So and I do that. It's more for myself. I don't I'm not part of the active, ongoing, important art world, but uh, I follow it and it has informed my work for sure. You know. Well, definitely. So you kind of first of all, I wanted to mention that when you talked about um, losing your 10 years of work, the first thing that sprung to my mind was uh, Ernest Hemingway yeah, yeah. losing all of his, you know, most of his work on a train. Well, his yeah. wife, his wife lost it. And um, did you did you feel like did you you know relate to him at all in that moment? No, I, I related. It was it's interesting because I related to a lot of people. I knew that Maxine Hong Kingston, who was friends of a friend of mine, had lost a manuscript, you know, a hard copy manuscript, which she did in the fire in in Oakland, California, had no copies of it. Oh. Um, I, I related to so many artists who'd had fires and, you know, their studios burned down. It was very hard to get my mind around it at first. I got wonderful letters and notes from people in the art world, some I didn't even know, you know, curators and um, who would send me things like, you know, these paintings are gone, but the images remain very, very touching, really oh. lovely. Um, so I remember, yeah. Anyway, writing is now, of course, um, a lot <laughs> safer because you have it on your computer, you have it in a cloud. 
Um, although there are days, you know, there are times I'm writing like crazy and I hit the wrong thing and suddenly everything disappears. And I'm like, whoa, what it can happened? still happen. Yeah. 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 yeah it's true. So, yeah. um, so how, how yeah. many books have you written now? Well, The Lost Van Gogh is my seventh novel. Okay. Seventh novel. I've written, I also published a memoir, um, The Widower's Notebook. That was a book I never really wanted to write, but I ended up sort of, I, it was notebooks I was keeping after the sudden and very tragic death of my wife. And I was sort of talked into to publishing those as a book. And I'm glad I did in the end because I hear from people still, and that book was several years ago, who write to me and say thank you for putting into words things I, I couldn't say. Um, I also have been the editor of lots of anthologies because I just love working with groups of writers and telling them what to do, you know, like saying, <laughs> write, you know, write a piece about X and they they do it. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, you know, you can participate in the world. It's interesting. These are very solitary activities, being a writer, being a painter. But you can participate in the world of writing more if you make to our anthologies. And I've become friends with many of the writers who I've worked with, which is wonderful. I'm I'm looking at your website, which is of course JonathanSanthlofer.com. And yeah. um the section on anthologies where you were the editor. There's quite a few. Uh Inherit yeah. the Dead, a collaboration between twenty best selling mystery novelists. That must have been fun. It was fun. You know what, what that was? Um, I it, it was a, that was a benefit. We did that for charity. Um, and I, I, I wrote to all of these writers and I said, it's you know, this was for victims of abuse. It was for, you know, a women who had been abused. I said, you have to put your money where your mouth is. I want, you know, and participate in this. And all those big name writers participated and there's a lot of terrific people um and they each just wrote a continuing chapter of the book and then i had to put it together but i think of my anthologies um it occur it occurs to me that i am america would be the one i'm most proud of it was writers and artists in response to what it meant to be an american during the very hard times i think we've all had and been experiencing for a while now. And that's a beautiful kind of coffee table book. Uh, and again, I got to ask, you know, remarkable people to make work for this book. And, and that's, that's a gift, you know, that's a gift. So. Oh yeah. 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 Well, let's get back to the lost Van Gogh. Yeah. And sure. the characters in this book, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest is Jonathan Santlofer. We're talking about The Lost Van Gogh. Now, these characters have appeared previously one. in one book before this? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. The last Mona Lisa. Okay. And is this the first time that you've had recurring characters? No. No. Um, I, uh, I, the Death Artist was a woman character, Kate McKinnon. I loved Kate. I loved her. I kind of, I kind of imagined a character that was the opposite of me. You know, a woman, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, rich, tall, and uh, and she had three books, 
And then I created another character, Nate Rodriguez, who I really loved, who was a forensic uh, cop who, you know, did, um, you know, um, drawings of criminals. And I went and studied to, to learn that. And I, I really it was actually I started those books, Anatomy of Fear, for example, because I wanted to figure out a way that I could do drawings in the book. So I became Nate Rodriguez and I did those victim drawings on the page. And I love that book, mm. Anatomy of Fear. Um, but I hadn't written a book like that. And and honestly, um, when my wife passed away, it was a very difficult time in my life. And I didn't write a novel for quite a while. I just couldn't write fiction. But uh, the last Mona Lisa I had started, I had started that 12 years ago. And it was my wife's favorite book of mine. And so a few years after she died, I picked it up again and I decided I was going to finish that book for her. And I it actually ended up at the time to be, I think, my best book and my favorite novel. And I just wasn't finished with those characters. You know, I while I was writing that book, they were still talking to me inside my head. And so this book sort of came about just as that book was finishing. Um, you know, it's a tricky thing, Monica, because how much do you have to tell a reader? I don't want them to feel like they have to read the last book, and they shouldn't, and I don't think they do. I think The Lost Van Gogh stands totally on its own. If you want to read The Last Mona Lisa, then you just find out more. You find out other things, and it's a different adventure um, and a different book. But the characters are the same character, same three main characters and then all these other characters is Luke Perone, who's um, a kind of mixed up, <clears throat> was a very troubled young man. He's an artist in New York and his <clears throat> um, partner, Alexis, who is um, her father is a, an art criminal. And then there's <laughs> John Washington Smith, who's an Interpol agent and how these three people come together, not always very happily, uh, intrigued me. And I will say that the first, the last Mona Lisa is definitely Luke's book. And I think, I think, I think the lost Van Gogh is John Washington Smith's book, the mm. Interpol book, because he kind of ran away with it. I didn't necessarily expect that. Uh, but I think he did. <clears throat> and that was fine with me. You know, I think he's a really interesting character <clears throat> for me to write and play with. So now the book, you change points of view throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And when you are <clears throat> yeah. in Luke's point of view, you're writing in first person, right? <clears throat> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, but when I, you're not in Luke's point of view, I believe you're in third person most of the yes. time or all the time. Almost all the time. I do one weird thing. <laughs> you know, I just have to, I hope my readers forgive me. <laughs> I, I have to make the books interesting to myself and I always have to learn something. So in the beginning of this book and throughout the book in little pieces, there's a second person character. You, you are doing this. You are looking at this and you have to bear with me because you have no idea who that is. But I hope 
my readers trust me and will think, okay, I know Jonathan's going to tell me at the end. He's going to reveal who they are, and I always do. <laughs> uh, I also like, you know, even when I was an artist, I, I didn't like sticking to the rules. I, I was one of those kids who could draw, but I drew outside the lines. And when I write, I want to expand the genre. You know, I don't think there's, you know, if you're writing in crime fiction and it's a mystery, why can't you have the writing be mysterious? Why can't you have the points of view be mysterious? So I will say, I just have to say that I, I there was a review in the Sun Sentinel, the, the Florida paper this morning that just, oh my God, it was so beautiful. And that's what you hope for, you know, a reviewer who understands what you're doing and, and liked the different points of view and, you know, and I've been getting a lot of online things from people who are reading it who say, you know, at the beginning, it's like, well, I had to stick with this, but man, it was great. And I, I don't know. I, well, well, when yeah. you're when you're doing this, when you're going back and forth, do you yeah. do you write like how do you decide which chapter is going to be from which point of view and how you arrange the chapters and you know, it just seems like it's a fairly complicated puzzle to put together. Well, it is. You know, every book is a complicated puzzle. And if you're going from something in the past to the present, in this book, there's a painting that, you know, Alex and Luke find this painting and then it's stolen from them. And they're with John Washington Smith trying to find it again. So what I've done, though, is trace what might that route might have been of that painting, you know, from 1945 to how it ends up in New York. And the two stories, the past and the present, eventually converge and you get all the information. But how do you decide? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think I think there are natural breaks in the plot, in the storyline where you're writing something and you think, oh, well, the reader needs to know something about, you know, what happened to this painting during the war, how it got moved from Amsterdam to Paris, how it moved from Amsterdam to New York. And so they become natural. Now, I will say, of course, I am I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite. So, of course, you know, things do get shifted around. I cut things. I change things. Um, so, I mean, for me, no matter how complex the book is, no matter how difficult this has been for me, what I want is a book that's easy for the reader. What I mean is I don't want them to see how hard I've worked. I just am against that idea. You know, as I once said to my mother, you don't want to see the ballerinas sweat, do you? No. <laughs> We want to see, we want it to be easy, you know? I, I mean, when I say easy, I mean, you want it to be a fully immersive experience. You want to move in the world of that book or in the world of that painting. So I don't want to put up impediments from my reader. So I try to make it all flow together as easily as possible. Um, and I've, I've always loved books that had two points of view and two stories. You know, you're reading them and one story ends and you think, no, 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 I'm not ready. But then you get into the next one and you're happy. And then you that one's ending going back. and You think, no, I'm not ready. <laughs> so I also like the idea that the two stories have to inform each other so that each time 
you move back, uh, you learn something, you know, that helps you. And the story in the past is, of course, much smaller. It comes at different intervals and it's not quite, you know, it's not as big as the contemporary story, but it's there for very obvious reasons. Right, to trace right, the right. Root. And yeah. so this painting got, um, was lost because yeah. of the Nazi and a, a lot of this, of the story has to do with the Nazis having looted paintings yeah. from Paris and from Jewish families throughout Europe and, and right. how they have remained hidden and are, are just now coming to light um, right. in some cases. So how, how frequently does this happen where, where these paintings are being found? Well, you know, a, a lot have been found. The Nazis stole something like 20 to 30 percent of all the art and artifacts in Europe. I mean, it's astonishing, not just from from Jews, but, you know, from wherever they, you know, they targeted. They would go into a country that they occupied and have lists. They were very organized about their plunder of the art they wanted. Um, Hitler was planning a museum in his hometown, the Führer Museum which was going to be stocked with all stolen art. So, um, you know, how often into, God, like less than 10 years ago, the FBI or it was the CIA found one of Hitler's appointed art dealers. They broke into his son's apartment. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I mentioned it in my book. I'm trying to remember if it's in Austria, Vienna. Can't remember. But they found looted art that had been missing, you know, for all these years, for a hundred and something years in this guy's apartment. And I'm talking about twenty five hundred pieces of art, you know, Picasso, Brock, Cezanne, everything. And it still goes on. They, the numbers vary, but but people say there are at least at least a hundred thousand works of art that are still missing and we don't know where they are. Wow. So. You know, it, it's still, and these works are still traded on the dark web. Um, it's and that was what that's what my book is about, really. I, I did a lot of research and a lot of reading to discover how these things could be traded and, and sold nowadays. Um, it's very diabolical, very dark. Um, you know, it's it, but it's a really interesting thing to have really dark and to me very important subject matter in a book that's I hope super entertaining because it's right. the way it's the best way to get your message across. People don't want to be lectured at. I don't want to be lectured at. And you know, to learn it in a book that is fun and exciting is a way you'll really remember it and understand it. Oh, absolutely. Right? That's one of the reasons I love historical fiction. I get to learn history while yeah. having fun. <laughs> right. Right. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And um, yeah. I, this reminds me, I, we had a guest on Writer's Voices earlier this year, Bryn Turnbull, who wrote uh -huh. an art forgery novel, The Paris Deception, which was all about World World War II, uh, you know, hiding right. art from the Nazis, which is what yeah. happened here as well. So it seems to be a, a topic that really grabs people. Like there were people who risked their lives to try yes. and save these masterpieces from from the Nazis. And it wasn't you know, just yeah. that that they were stealing them. In some cases, they were destroying them. Yes, yes. You know, the well, two two things I want to 
say is, you, you know, the, the French resistance understood that these artworks that were being destroyed and stolen were their culture. It was their heritage. These were things that were part of their world, and they really understood that. Um, the Nazis, you know, they labeled, which you'll know from the book, a whole group of artists, degenerate, degenerate art, and they were burning them in bonfires. Um, so, you know, the, the French underground, the resistance, hid a lot of important paintings. Um, I take this example, which is the first chapter of the book, of, of French resistance artists painting over a painting to save it. Um, this did happen. This kind of thing did happen. But you're right. These people risk their lives for objects. And you say to yourself, well, how how important is an object? And and the, these people believe, and I, my hat is off to them. My hat and my heart is off to them. They understood that a work of art was an a living example of a period of time in their country and their people's history. And, um, you know, as I also say in the book, the, that every lost artwork, every stolen artwork was a stolen life because most of the people's artwork that was stolen were murdered. The Nazis murdered them to get this work unless they managed to escape and they escaped without the work. You know, it's pretty, it's a, it's really astonishing. It's it's crazy um, thing to think about. But I, but yes, you're right, Monica, it is great material for a story. It's, it's got all the ingredients for, you know, uh, uh, bravery, uh, treachery, all of those things, you know, so. Well, the, the thing I've always wondered about is when you have stolen art like this, obviously, the market is limited. No. Sure. So yes. who is it that wants to buy art that they can never show anybody that well, they can and that they can't actually probably sell for as much as if it were, you know, the, the values may not increase as much as if you if I were to go out and buy it, a Picasso, I would expect that the value would increase over years and maybe the stolen ones would, too. But because you're market is so limited, I would think you wouldn't have the upside potential. So why? Why do people want to buy you know, spend that, millions of dollars on this? You bring up <laughs> a, a really important issue around stolen art. Number one, I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, it it's going to get you in trouble. You're very likely to be caught, although there are great art thefts that have never been caught. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, they've never found those paintings. Most famous art that's stolen is what, what is known in the FBI, CIA world as commissioned art. What that means is, Monica, that you go to some art thieves and you pay them to steal specific paintings for you. Um, because you can't steal a Rembrandt and sell it on the open market. You're going to get caught. The other thing is that often work is stolen. Like the Gardner Museum theft is believed to be the Irish mafia. And it's believed that that work was used in barter for weapons 
for four drugs. So, for example, you steal those 13 paintings from the gardener. You can't really sell them, but you give them to somebody in exchange for heroin produce, for munitions. And when they sell them, you because you they, these people don't necessarily have $500 million, they're holding the artwork. They give the artwork back. So the artwork, the stolen artwork becomes used as barter often. And then it gets traded again and again. Um, it's, it's really... You know, when you think about these beautiful individual artworks made by people ending up being used for such awful things, it's very scary. But I mean, there's I I, I've in my line of writing and working, uh, I've met, you know, a a Scotland Yard man and a a guy from uh, the FBI who had been part of their art squad. And they tell told me these amazing stories, you know, like a young kid in in I think it was Vienna who stole a painting, a, a kind of well-known painting off the wall of a tiny museum and tried to sell it. And he ended up being murdered because you can't deal with these people who, you know, the the, the bad people who deal with this art or the fact that they were doing a drug raid in New Jersey and they broke into this house. And the walls were covered with stolen art. I mean, this drug lord had his walls covered with Renoir and Degas (laughs) and Cezanne and Picasso. They didn't expect to find the stolen art. He had it right out there for everyone to see. So not only did they have a drug bust, but they uncovered all this stolen art. It's a huge market, I should say. Stolen art is, I think, on the FBI and Interpol's like number three crime because the money value is so huge, so huge, you know, so. Yeah, but it's still, I guess you've got somebody who would be a drug lord isn't thinking like you or I, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you or me. There are, (laughs) no, I hope not. there (laughs) There are cases of individual, we don't know them specifically, art collectors who have commissioned, you know, art thefts, and they have them in a vault just for themselves. I mean, in the last Mona Lisa, I, my art. I just can't understand that like mentality. (laughs) I agree with you. I, I, you know, my characters at the end of this book are talking a little about who should own great art. I am not, you know, I'm very torn about the, I love, you know, I think art collectors are great people because they help support the arts and artists. But I think ultimately they are bound to give they should give those paintings to public collections because, you know, those paintings should be there for everybody to see. They they should not be locked away for one person or, you know, yeah. the Leonardo da Vinci that was discovered a few years ago, the Salvatore Monday painting, which sold at auction for four hundred and fifty million dollars, disappeared. And it's pretty much believe that it's on a Saudi Arabian prince's yacht. Um, and which means, number one, it's going to be in very bad shape physically being on a yacht with all that water. And two, that nobody's ever going to see it. You yeah. Know? It's yeah. locked away. And I, I'm against that idea. You know, I, I don't I, I don't think, you know, if the if the lost Van Gogh, the last self-portrait that Van Gogh supposedly made that is missing ever turned up. 
just imagine what it would be worth, you know, wow. if, if Leonardo was 450 or Andy Warhol, a couple recently sold for $200 million at auction. Imagine what people would pay for the last Van Gogh self portrait, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. but I think, you know, we have to go to a few and I, we should go to a flea market, buy some <laughs> And hope for the best. <laughs> I know. And that that's like the fun thing. Doesn't everyone dream of like inheriting or finding in their grandmother's yeah. attic some lost right. masterpiece? You know? yeah. <laughs> that's the way, you know, this, this book, that was part of my initial idea that Luke and Alex, she goes to a flea market. She buys this painting. She likes it. She knows it's not a big deal. It's twenty five dollars. I mean, it doesn't ruin much because it's on the flap copy. (laughs) They take it home. Luke says to her, look, it's chipping. And they start peeling the painting. And, yeah, it's that fantasy, you know. I mean, why don't you you read a little bit from The Lost Van Gogh for us? Okay, so I will uh, set this up. What I'm reading, which is very short, it's only a couple of pages, is the prologue of this book, which I think sets it up. And um, maybe I don't even have to tell you much because you would open the book and and, and this is what you read. So, <clears throat> Paris, 1944. He could get shot for what he was doing. Windows shut, shades drawn, the room stifling. One lamp on as he applied a thin wash of glue over the tracing paper. Then he laid it onto the painting, flattened it using a soft rag so that it molded to the surface, taking on the impression of every brushstroke below. This part was crucial, the paper a divider, a layer between the old and the new. While he waited for it to dry, he shook a jeton out of a crumpled blue pack, placed it between his lips and took a drag. The smoke harsh, the taste bitter. Harsh and bitter, he thought like the past five years. A moment to fiddle with the dial on the cheap Bakelite radio he'd outfitted with an antenna so he could pick up the BBC and on occasion American music, his favorite. Though it was a criminal offense to listen to foreign radio stations, he didn't care and it no longer mattered. His good luck tonight, the King Cole trio, the lead singer's voices, smooth as silk despite the static. He sang along, mimicking words he didn't understand. It's only a paper moon. Then he tested the painting's surface, still not dry. According to the company's claim, the new thermoplastic glue would create a strong bond that could be easily removed in the future. Below the translucent paper, the image appeared ghost-like and one he would never forget. Of all the pictures he had painted over, this was the most important. When he touched the surface again, the glue was dry. He applied a layer of water-based white paint over the paper, creating a clean surface, then propped the canvas onto an easel. He thought about painting a Rouault-like clown or a simple design, then slipped a photograph from his wallet, a picture of his wife, Josette, taken five years ago before the world had erupted, her face dramatically lit, half of it shrouded in darkness. Jetons between his lips, he poured linseed oil into a small tin and added a few drops of cobalt dryer. Though he knew it would eventually make the painting crack, 
saving time now was more important. Sorting through his remaining tubes of paint, he arranged small blobs of pigment onto his makeshift palette. Mars black, titanium white, burnt umber, Naples yellow, a dollop of precious Venetian red from an almost squeezed out tube, a sprinkling of marble dust over them all to speed the drying even further. He shifted the lamp closer and worked fast using his largest brush to paint a dark wash of black and umber to fill in the shadow side of the face. For the light side, he mixed white and Naples yellow and laid it on quickly. With a small pointy brush, he added a few deft strokes indicating the nose, eyes, mouth, then mixed vermilion with more white to make pink and filled in the lips, trying to capture Josette's hopeful half smile. The radio was all static now, but he didn't stop to fix it. He was lost in the painting, creating shadows beneath the nose and chin, the slightest suggestion of eyelashes, working quickly, the thought of another bonfire, not only possible, but probable, artillery fire in the distance growing louder. A few broad strokes across the forehead and on top of the nose to make them stand out, then lighter highlights at the corner of the lips, and a thick dot of white to create a convincing tear in her eye. Something not in the photograph, but Josette had cried so many times in the past four years, he could paint it by heart. After that, he was finished. No reason to labor over a painting that would one day be destroyed. He turned it around, painted 1944 on the back, dried his hands and set the painting in front of a fan. A moment to play with the radio's dial, this time to find the resistance station and his instructions in code about where to deliver the painting. And so that's, the, that's where it all begins. That's where it all begins. <laughs> We're beginning at the end of the war in Paris. This man is frantically covering painting a painting, artillery fire in the distance, the the Allied forces were already coming into Paris, but what was going on was the Nazis were frantic and they were destroying things. They were destroying paintings and they're trying to save them. You know, it's also I, I don't know how many people know this, but the that Hitler had had bombs placed under all of the major monuments in Paris, the Eiffel Tower, the Notre Dame. All of these places, and he gave the command for them to be blown up as they were coming, as the Allies were coming. And a German soldier refused to do it. He said, I don't want to be in history as the man who destroyed the City of Light. Oh, now, wow. there's somebody who risked his life, went against his commander and saved a city and saved a city. And do we know so, what happened to him? I'm sure we do. I <laughs> I only researched that much. I hope we do. He is yeah. a heroic. You know, there were many heroic figures. There's a woman who I mentioned in the book who worked at the Jeu de Palme, which is a museum in Paris, and it's where the Nazis stored all of their stolen artworks. And she spoke German, but they didn't know it. And so she would hide art. She would get it to the resistance. She would pass messages to the resistance because she had heard things in German that they didn't realize. And she risked her life many, many times. I mean, 
pretty extraordinary what people can do, you know, for the right thing when they when they believe in something and when they're you know, their culture, their life, their way of life is threatened. So one thing, and I think it was in the book where um, they put on this show of degenerate art, the art that was supposed to be so terrible. You want to tell yeah. us about that? <laughs> oh, my God, that is a great story. So the Germans and all of their unwise, but, you know, they gathered together this huge exhibition of work they called degenerate art. And, you know, it was displayed and they wrote things on the wall, terrible things about the art around the art, you know, like degenerate this. There was all kinds of racial epithets, um, Jewish epithets, horrible stuff. And at the same time, they had another show called Great German Art. But what happened was nobody went to see the Great German Art. They created this this, you know, everybody wanted to see the what they considered so horrible. And it. What they inadvertently did, I, I give the statistics in the book, uh, millions, hundreds of thousands of people, Germans, came to see the Degenerate Art Show. Now, whether or not they liked it, they came to see it. And what ultimately happened because of this is that work, work became very, very valuable. <laughs> Even Hitler, Hitler and his henchmen all wanted to collect it. Um, they all realized they destroyed a lot of it, but they also suddenly realized, oh, my God, this work is valuable. We have to get our hands on it. And so they were using it to sell, to support the Third Reich often. And then some of the more savvy people like Goring and Goebbels, who had art collections, huge art collections, would buy it for themselves. And, you know, I mean, it's. Um, and how it's did they define art as degenerate? What made. Art degenerate well, it did not it did not adhere to the rules that they had for art, which was to glorify the nation, which was um, had to be realistic, had, to, you know, all these things. So we, you know, Picasso was a degenerate artist. Mac, the great Max Beckmann, who is a fantastic German artist who just before this, before the Third Reich came to power, had this his own room in a museum was suddenly a degenerate artist because he's, he didn't abstract, but he exaggerated forms. Um, he made paintings that were critical of the German government. Of course, that was immediately degenerate. Um, any work that dealt with any racial issues, um, work, uh, that was non-conforming. That was non-conforming. But, you know, we're talking about, so, you know, post, I mean, Van Gogh, Van Gogh was a degenerate artist to them because he exaggerated form. He didn't stick to the exact replication of beauty. Uh, so that was why it, I used Van Gogh because I happen to love Van Gogh and I've loved him since I was a, a kid. And I and because he was labeled a degenerate artist. Um, and I and I because also, there is this missing painting, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe, you know, we don't know if, if it's apocryphal or not. You know, his friend uh, wrote a letter. And in that letter, he alludes to this painting that nobody's ever yet seen again. So and there's I also used, a know, mystery surrounding his death in real life. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to give that away, Monica. But, <laughs> you know, I uh, it's uh, Luke and Alex 
because of the painting and be, they go to Auvers-sur-Oise in France, where Van Gogh spent his last 70 days. And we learn through what they learn through a diary that they read what might have really happened to Van Gogh. And I read a really great book. Um, it's called The Biography, The Life, Van Gogh, The Life. And it's 900 pages long. It's everything you ever wanted to know about Van Gogh. And it reads, you know, you can't sit down and read it in one shot, but you can read it in parts. And it's it also it lays out all of these things that very likely happened to Van Gogh. It's not as simple as people think. Um, and I went there, you know, I, I went to that town, which I recommend if, you know, that's the great part of all research for books, you get to travel, and you should, as I said earlier. So Auvers-sur-Oise is this town north of Paris, and Van Gogh went there for his health, uh, and he lived there for 70 days, and in those 70 days, he made 75 paintings, more than one painting a day. So he was in a very prolific, manic phase of his life, he, such beautiful paintings, um, and I went to see where he worked, and the Auberge Revue, where he rented a room where he lived, he lived in a tiny attic room, which, you know, I got to stand in that room. It, it is so moving and touching to think that this artist who has become possibly our most famous artist, he lived like a monk, you know, in this tiny room. His father was a pastor and he had trained for the clergy himself, but he failed and he couldn't do it. And but he was, was a very devout man um, and his art his became his religion. You know, that that was what he was became. Um, so, you know, Van Gogh's life and his dedication and his the mystery of his death and uh, all of those things <laughs> are, are so inspiring and moving and a great and, and basis for a suspense thriller. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. I do think that, you know, there's so much we don't know and that we suppose and that, yeah. you know, like all people who love to write mysteries, crime novels, thrillers. I always have this thing in my head, like, what if like what if that painting were found? You know what? How did it get to New York? Why did it you know like that? Well, this is a really fun read. And Jonathan, we're completely out of time. Oh, so I know we could keep talking because what a subject. Thank you. Talk to you, Monica. You're a lot of fun and you're good questions. Well, thank you. And we always end with the quote. And I have a Van Gogh quote for us to finish on. I feel that there's nothing more truly artistic than to love people. It's true. He said that. Yeah. And he, you know, he went and he lived with minors. And with, I mean, he, he was a really extraordinary person. Very extraordinary. So yeah. if you want to learn a little more about Van Gogh, read The Lost Van Gogh. And if you just want a fun read, read The Lost Van Gogh. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And I, see you all next week on Writer's Voices.